From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The captive wildlife crisis. It's how our guest today refers to the many wild animals, at least they're supposed to be wild, living in private homes, languishing in roadside zoos, and orphaned by shuttered circuses around the world. Pat Craig runs a growing sanctuary for them in Colorado. For most of them, it's the first time in their whole life they've ever been able to run because their cages were typically so small that they could only pace in a cage and never had ran in their life. Do they know how to run then? No. And a lot of them will start to run and, and actually fall flat on their face. Today, what laws prevent further exploitation and why tobacco is a trigger for some rescued bears? Then, how not to watch the Perseid meteor shower, which is about to peak, and why you should bring some friends. A lot of Evergreen members don't know their membership has expired. It's easy to keep your Evergreen membership current by using your checking account. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. If you've heard the sad and actually criminal story depicted in Tiger King, the TV series, well, then you're already familiar with some of the creatures we'll highlight today. We started to have to rescue all these animals even before that show aired. And to date, we've actually rescued over 127 tigers and other animals from those facilities because wow. three of them have been shut down already. This is Pat Craig. He's the founder and CEO of the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Keensburg, northeast of Denver. Now, if you're not familiar with the Tiger King story... The TV show Tiger King was on Netflix, and it had a number of characters that were featured in it. Uh, most of them were pretty nefarious people that were breeding and selling and using and abusing lions and tigers, and especially tiger cubs, and that was why it was aptly named Tiger King. And frankly, um, murdering. Yeah, absolutely. It was part of the conviction that sent one of them to prison for 22 years was because he was convicted of killing the tigers to make space for more because he just kept breeding and having more and more tigers and was running out of space. So he thought it'd be easy just to kill him, you know. And so he was convicted partly of that and partly of having a murder for hire plot, which was a whole other story of the Tiger King. A salacious human story, but one of animal cruelty that's too often repeated around the world at makeshift zoos, circuses, and even in people's homes. And that's why the Wild Animal Sanctuary, fully accredited and licensed, exists to take in the animals that survive, that are rescued, and give them a better life on Colorado's plains. We visited, and I'm just going to tell you, our interview won't feature roars or growls or caresses with cubs. This is not an experience where you're at eye level with the animals. Yes. Um, we are on a walkway that is above the fields and the enclosures. Why is that? Well, it's really critical. Um, you know, obviously it gives you a good view, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point of it was is that we didn't want the pressure to be on the animals. And all the animals, even, you know, dogs and cats and turtles or whatever, are territorial. And so when people are on ground level, especially people they don't know, and you're walking right by their habitat, they feel like that's an encroachment, that you're a threat. And so that's when they they either want to fight or flight, so they would normally either come over and tell you to go away, which they can if there's a fence or a moat. Otherwise, they would run away to get away from you, and so then they're, they would run to the back of the habitat, or, and then they just wouldn't be able to use their space. So when you're elevated, 
animals don't consider the sky or air to be territory. Oh. And so it doesn't bug them a bit. Even if you're 10 feet above them, it still doesn't bother them like 10 feet outside their habitat. We're here fairly early in the morning, right? and that's because there's more stirring this time of day? Yeah, in the summer, you know, as the temperatures get higher, the animals are smart, and they go sleep in the shade during the hottest part of the day. So coming in first thing in the morning or later in the evening is the best time to see the animals. They sound a lot like me in the summer, <laughs> yeah. retreating for the shade. Yeah. We are looking out at a pretty pastoral scene, very typical of eastern Colorado, with agricultural operations all around us. But then your vast acreage of enclosures, but this doesn't feel like a zoo. Explain to me the acreage here, and you've got a second spot in southern Colorado, I should say. Just how many animals are around us? Well, that's the amazing thing. As you look around us, we have 800 acres here near Kenisburg, Colorado, and that spreads the animals out. We're 500 animals that live at this facility. And yet, when you're looking, you don't see any right away because you have to stop and start to really look because every habitat is large. Well, let's stop. let's stop and start to look. Yeah. Look at this little guy. So he looks a bit like a domesticated dog, but I'm guessing <laughs> that's not what we are seeing. No, this is a tree fox. He lives in a natural habitat here with other foxes that we've rescued. It's kind of unique. You mentioned he looked somewhat like a dog. They're black and white, and which is really odd for a... Uh, a fox, what we think of, with red foxes. and Totally. But tree foxes actually go in trees to steal eggs from birds or catch baby birds or do whatever they got to do to survive. And they just eventually evolved to have a few different colors, and this is one of them where they're black and white. And why would a tree fox need rescuing pet? Every animal we have here was either somebody tried to have it as a pet or it was confiscated by the government by somebody who was not taking care of it, um, either abusing it or some of these were bought illegally or whatever and so every animal we have here with the exception of just a few are confiscated through some legal process looks like he's got something in yeah. his mouth yeah. i'm not sure just something that he's gnawing on yeah. we feed over eighty thousand pounds of food a week here just at this facility alone eighty thousand pounds a week right. who are the biggest Eaters. The biggest consumers, obviously, the large carnivores, the lions, the tigers, the leopards, you know, the big, big cats and the bears. And um, what do they tend to eat? The big cats will eat a mixture of beef and poultry and pork and mutton and different kinds of meats mixed together with vitamins and minerals. But they'll, you know, eat an average of 10 to 15 pounds a day per animal. And with this facility having 500 and some animals here, that's a lot of food to feed. Um, Where does that food come from? Uh, most of our food is donated, thankfully. You know, for years we had to purchase all that food, which was millions and millions of dollars. So currently um, we have a, a corporation in the United States that has big box stores, and they donate about $8 million a year in food. Wow. Are you independently wealthy, Pat? Have you been <laughs> paying for this all on your own out of your personal millions? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, it was in the first 18 years I actually worked jobs to help keep the sanctuary going so I had to do the work of the sanctuary plus work full-time jobs to try and fund it but obviously in the last 20 years or so that we've been doing this or 28 years now out here um, <laughs> you've lost count yeah it gets I've been doing this 41 years so you got to start figuring out where you've been um, but this is our third facility and we've been here about 28 years and everything you do is for the animals so I work 
seven days a week. You know, I've done that for 40 years. I haven't take vacations or go on trips or do things like that. Going on a rescue is kind of a vacation for me. But You've been all over the world for rescues. Yeah, we've been um, many different countries saving animals, obviously all over the United States saving animals. But it's a passion of mine, and pretty much everybody works here. It's a passion for them. A lot of volunteer work. Yeah, we have over 160 volunteers that work here. Oh, just as you're talking, there's a big cat walking up what kind of looks like something I have for my house cat, (laughs) but on a grander scale, kind of a suspension bridge. What are we seeing right now? Yeah, this is a black leopard. His name is Jumanji. Okay. (laughs) And he's going up to what they love the most. I mean, all large carnivores love to be elevated so they can see their territory so they either sit on a hill or some other feature they can find and so we built this sky bridge which goes over a big pond for them um, this is a leopard habitat that we're looking into and now he's a black cat yep black solid black and he was rescued from a really horrific roadside zoo in new york it was middle of winter they were all freezing there was no heat provided he had frostbite all over his body and open sores and horrific conditions and so we were able to rescue quite a number of animals from that roadside zoo and bring them here. And a lot of people, you know, of course, think Colorado's cold, but on the plains of Colorado, where we are right now, our average winter days are 45, Oh my! you know, sunny. And so a black cat like him comes out on a sunny day and enjoys the warm weather in the middle of winter and, and is just as roasty warm as he would be in the summer. You were describing really that before and after that Jumanji was suffering frostbite, you said? Right. Yeah. And and what do you see in these animals when they arrive here and they start to thrive? What's the change you notice? Well, that's the amazing part is to see how they do change from the horrific places they lived. Jumanji was a great story and you start to see initially they're pretty sick and pretty tired or weak or whatever is afflicting them. And then we obviously have full-time veterinarians here in our own veterinary clinic and then they start to get a really good diet. They get a really good habitat. For most of them, it's the first time in their whole life they've ever been able to run because their cages were typically so small that they could only pace in a cage and never had ran in their life. Do and they know how to run then? No, no. no. That's, that's the crazy thing is we watch animals that first time in the habitat that they get out in that space and they start to become happy because they all of a sudden realize they have this wonderful space. And movement. And a lot of them will start to run and, and actually fall flat on their face because they don't have the motor skills. Pat, do you cry a lot? Um, I do, especially when you think about the places they come from. Um, but you do get super happy when they finally get to live there and you get pretty choked up. Is the law on the animal side in this country? I mean, you're talking about these places with just horrific conditions for animals. I know that there are, as well, just private, individual, residential owners of mm-hmm. exotic animals. Yeah. Is the law helping staunch the flow of creatures that need rescuing? It is. It's been a long process. Over the 41 years I've done this, back 41 years ago, there was no laws. You know, they just people could do whatever they wanted. And up until then, most people didn't have access to lions or tigers, so it wasn't a problem. But back in the late 60s, early 70s, um, a lot of animals got the, made their way out of the zoo system into private hands, and then people started breeding them and selling them. And uh, people thought, oh, I'll have one as a pet, and they'd have it in their garage or basement or apartment or... And so that was where the whole captive wildlife crisis is what we call it and started. Captive wildlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it just turned into this Wild West kind of thing where people were running around buying and breeding and selling. And 
and they basically permeated the entire United States with a whole subclass of animals outside the zoo system. And even today, there's still over 20,000 lion, tigers, bears, wolves, leopards that are outside the zoo system in the United States. Going back to Tiger King, that Joe Exotic character would breed, you know, 70 to 100 baby tigers a year. And you have numerous characters like that. They're just going everywhere. And then most people that get them think, well, I'll breed too. And then they breed. And so it's like this exponential thing that kind of like a pyramid scheme where all of a sudden it's just saturating worse and worse and getting more babies. And must make you feel daunted to some extent. I wonder if these animals sometimes are taken care of by people with good intentions, but who really just don't have the means. And that's truly how I think most of these start. I I think even the worst characters out there originally started with the right intent. Hmm. What happens, just like when I started 41 years ago, first thing you realize is, A, it's expensive as heck to try and buy the food and take care of these animals and build them a decent, you know, enclosure and that kind of thing. But then you've got the danger of lions and tigers biting and scratching and all the other things. And so a lot of people get one without really thinking about it and then they all of a sudden realize oh this is expensive and hard and the more they breed or the more they collect then it gets more and pretty soon they think okay the only way i'm going to make money is to either start breeding and selling these things or i've got to open a roadside zoo or i'm going to do something to try and offset those and they're forced down that road you're Mm -hmm. saying by circumstance Mm -hmm. so do you spay and neuter animals that you have here or do they come that way or do you just leave them wild in that <laughs> no, sense? No, absolutely. We we want to control breeding. We don't want to reproduce here because that again was the biggest problem in the United States is uh-huh. the reproduction. But so for the most part we neuter the males. It's a it's a much simpler process than obviously doing a Uh, spay on a a large carnivore or something like that. And yet another dimension of the expense and the expertise that you have to bring. You gave us some taste of the need out there, how many animals probably still need rescuing. This is partly why you have a second facility. It's not really open to the public in southern, I think, southeastern Colorado. Mm. Tell us just briefly about it. Yeah, uh, we have a second facility. Um, It's in southeast Colorado, and it is not open to the public. Primarily, obviously, we still want to protect the animals, but mainly because it's so remote that it's insanely arduous journey to try and make it there. Bigger than the land here? Yeah, it's just under 10,000 acres. Wow. So it's about four and a half miles wide by about six miles long, and it's beautiful because it's completely forested with evergreens and rugged canyons with big rock outcroppings. And And who's there? What sorts of creatures? Pretty much all the new rescues go to that facility. This facility is, in essence, full, and we've been landlocked by other houses around us, and so most all the new rescues um, go straight to that facility. And pretty amazing to see uh, the animals down there live as close to living in the wild as you could ever imagine. We supply food and medical care, but otherwise they're just exploring their giant habitats. That means you have some room for new rescues then, correct? That's correct. Yeah, that facility could hold quite a few more. We have, like I told you before, 500 plus animals here. That facility has only been open since um, early 2018, and we've been building new habitats constantly. So there's over 100 animals down there currently, but there'll be upwards of 1,000 or more. I thought I'd ask you about something I heard in the kind of welcome and safety announcement you have in the visitor's center. There's no smoking right. anywhere near the wild animal sanctuary. And the video mentions that one reason is that there are bears on premises who were trained 
with nicotine. What is that story, Pat? Yeah, and that's some of the craziest things that we come across when we rescue animals. There was a circus that had two giant grizzly bears that would ride on horseback and ride bicycles and play basketball and do all these unnatural things. I mean, I imagine that's a visual feast for a kid, but it's not what a bear's meant to do. Exactly. And so grizzly bears are incredibly smart. They're very intelligent. They're very big. And so it's not like you can just force a grizzly bear to ride a bicycle. Or So the trainers in circuses have come up over the years with various ways to encourage, if you want to call it that, animals to do their tricks. And Wait, did they get them addicted to nicotine? They did. So they would initially put tobacco in taffy because bears like sweets and just feed them the taffy with tobacco. And then once they got them addicted to the nicotine, then the bears would start to do whatever the heck they wanted them to do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so smoking is a trigger. Oh yeah, they can smell even an unlit cigarette, uh, you know, let alone a lit one, or if somebody has chewing tobacco with them or, and you know, even though they've theoretically, you know, beat the habit or whatever, they still, when they smell it, they get pretty upset. Tell us what we're seeing. So right now we're walking down the walkway. As we said, it goes over numerous habitats. But off to our left is a tiger habitat. And off to our right is an African lion habitat. And the thing that we find when people visit is they have to learn to slow down and start to look. Because it could be, you know, right over a lion or a tiger or whatever. But they could also be a quarter mile out in the grass. If you look to your right, those are grizzly bears. (gasps) Oh, look. You really do have to pause and take it in and focus those are three three, bears three young ones they were just swimming in that big pond that they have and so they're running back to their underground den all of our habitats have underground dens why is that cooler it's cooler in the summer and it's warmer in the winter these dens are six feet underground and so mother nature the heat from the center of the earth keeps the ground at about 60 degrees when you're that deep and so in the winter That's pretty nice. Yeah, in the summer, that's nice and cool. Now, what's the story of three baby bears in captivity? Yeah, these three baby bears were confiscated from a guy who was breeding and selling in um, Indiana, Ohio, because he had two facilities. He would breed mountain lions and bears, especially grizzly bears was kind of his forte. And then just run ads in social media and newspapers saying, you know, buy a baby grizzly bear cub and show a little cute cub that was maybe... Five pounds, you know, and of course a grizzly's going to end up a thousand pounds. And that's one of the biggest problems with this whole industry is you see a baby tiger, baby lion, baby bear cub. They're fluffy. They're cute. I mean, it's just adorable. And of course, everybody and brother wants to hold one. And I'd say about 99% of the people go, okay, but that's going to grow up and be this monstrous animal. And there's this small percentage, you know, less than 1% of the population that somehow think that they're special and they're going to be able to raise it and train it and keep it house trained and it's not going to tear everything to pieces or bite anybody and which is unrealistic unrealistic you know just to circle back to something we were talking about earlier is what that man was doing in ohio and indiana is that illegal now it is um in a way most of the laws that have any kind of teeth to them are either state laws that are very specific like colorado has very tight laws about owning captive wildlife or anything like that other states have laws that just say you can have one, but you got to have a permit and things that you have to do to, to get it. So we're still fighting to get it to where every state has a full ban, zero, you can't have one. He's in a state where he can actually sell grizzly cubs in state, but nowhere else in the country. So it's a bit of a patchwork. Yeah, it's patchwork, unfortunately. And so that's part of what we've been fighting for the last 40 years is to get a much solider 
set of laws out there are more comprehensive. And at the same time, you know, I truly believe that it really comes down to social pressure because I use an analogy a lot of times with people. I say, oh, you know, if, if your neighbor called you up and said, hey, I have a baby tiger, you want to come see it? You'd be like, oh, yeah. I mean, well, how, many, how often do I get to see a baby tiger? I'm going to run over there and see it. And then once you see it, you know, and play with it or whatever, you might kind of start to concern about what's going to happen to it, but not initially. Where if your neighbor called you up and said, hey, I found a baby by the dumpster. Do you want to come see it? You'd be like, well, aren't you going to take it to the hospital or call the police? Or what are you going to, I mean, instantly they're just like, oh, my God, I'm really worried about that baby. You want to train that reflex into people. I want that reflex with people when they think of any animal. It doesn't matter if it's a horse or cow or lion or tiger. To instantly just be like, if somebody says, hey, I've got this calf in my backyard or I got a, it doesn't matter. I've got this or that. If they're not a a rancher or somebody who's doing this professionally or whatever, then why do you have it and what's the future for that animal? Similarly, how am I to be a more discerning tourist? So if I pass a roadside attraction, how do I know whether to subsidize it? How do I know whether it's legit? It's extremely important question and that's... One of the biggest reasons that there are accrediting agencies like GFAS, which is the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, they have incredibly stringent rules and regulations and, and criteria standards for organizations to pass. So which, GFAS is something I should look for? GFAS is, and when it comes to sanctuaries, GFAS is the, the gold standard. Okay. And, and I guarantee you that any facility that has that GFAS accreditation is a good facility. You don't have to worry about breeding or selling or you know commercializing or abusing the animals in any way. There are a lot of other things, like obviously there are zoos and that are some are accredited, most are accredited. There's some that aren't, um, but a lot of the facilities you got to go to, you want to make sure that they have some sort of governing system like that that is going to guarantee you that they're good because they they'll guarantee you that they'll have some big spiel that they'll tell you and it sounds awesome, but you want somebody else to have have really vetted that organization. Every animal here is a story. Every animal is. A survivor, as you say. Thanks for scratching the surface with us. I really appreciate it, Pat. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, there's so much about the sanctuary that people can learn about that that's very kind of you to do that. Pat Craig is CEO of the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Keensburg, as well as the Wild Animal Refuge near Springfield in southern Colorado. There's also a smaller facility in Texas. Craig's life and work are the subject of the recent book, Forever Wild, Forever Home. And we are back in the next half hour with a spectacle coming to August skies. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Cousin to squirrels, not canines, prairie dogs dig vast underground burrows that can cover hundreds of acres. The prairie dog barks. It also growls and chatters. And if it spots danger, a rattlesnake, coyote, or bulldozer, it makes a noise between a chirp and a wheeze. When the coast is clear, it leaps and yips again. Soon the whole colony will be yipping and jumping. 
Koori Dog Towns are home to other species that appreciate their engineering prowess, like the burrowing owl, which actually cannot dig at all. Grasses above a prairie dog town are higher in protein and nitrogen, making them choice grazing for bison, elk and pronghorn. And down below, the prairie dogs keep order. Rodents they may be, but they're not filthy. They build bathroom chambers in their tunnels. When one is full, they dig a new one. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Never let it fade away. Do you know this song, Perry Como, Catch a Falling Star? I can't speak to the pocket part, but the night sky next week offers a primo chance to see a lot of falling stars, scientifically known as meteors. The height of the annual Perseid meteor shower is Wednesday and Thursday, and a new moon will only enhance the spectacle. Astronomer Doug Duncan of CU Boulder is back. Hi, Doug. Hello, Ryan. Where can Coloradans get the best glimpse of the Perseids? Any place you can go that's nice and dark. And the darker it is, the more you're going to see. So the... Uh, the Actually, previously on CPR this morning, they were talking about uh, uh, dark sky reserves. And those are places deliberately with no outdoor lighting where the sky is perfect and beautiful and black. But you don't have to be there. Uh, I usually drive up into the mountains away from the city lights. And if you do that, you're going to see maybe 50 or 60 every hour at the height the, the two best nights of the meteor shower. If you can only get to the suburbs or if you live there, you might see 10 an hour. And unfortunately, if you're down in the middle of the city lights, you might only see one or two. So it is worth your while to get far away from the lights if you can. You mentioned dark sky designations. This is true now of a growing number of parks and recreation areas. And the latest is Curaconti. Uh, that's the uh, latest dark sky, I think, a recreation area. And does it help to be uh, on a hill or on a mountain elevation at all? You know, even though the meteors appear to come from one constellation, Perseus, and that's how they get their name, the Perseid meteor shower, they shoot all across the sky. So the more sky you can see, the better. And actually, what I like to do is go out with three friends, and we all get our sleeping bags, and we all face different directions, you know, north, south, east, west. Uh And then as soon as somebody sees one shooting across the sky, you go, there, there. And we all look where the person is is looking. I just want to say that Perseus, a figure in Greek mythology, one of the greatest Greek heroes and slayer of monsters. Before. Slayer of Medusa, yes. <laughs> Medusa. And in terms of timing, when will you be up stirring to watch this? Well, I'll probably watch a little all through the night, but... You always see quite a bit more meteors after midnight. And and the reason for that is really quite interesting. Let's see if we can get our listeners to visualize why that is. It's actually the same reason that more bugs hit the front windshield of your car than hit the back. Okay, I think everybody would know that. So why does that work in space? Um, Imagine you had a friend 
in the middle of a big room, and your friend is the sun, and you walk in a large circle around your friend. Yes. That's what the Earth does every year. We go around the sun. But to make it realistic, as you're walking around your friend, you should spin on your feet every, uh, every day, okay, because that's the Earth turning. Yeah. So imagine you're walking in a big circle and turning a lot. Well, every time you face your friend, that's that's noon. You're facing the sun. Every time you turn and you're faced away from your friend, that's midnight. Well, after midnight, you continue to rotate into the same direction you're, you're walking. So you're facing forward in the Earth's orbit, for, uh, the forward part of the Earth after midnight, and you see maybe twice as many meteors hit you because you're facing forward. The windshield of Earth. <laughs> the windshield of Earth. That's right. The forecast says it'll be mostly clear next week, not much chance of rain. Yay. <laughs> exactly. Uh, should people haul out binoculars to see? Oh, absolutely not. Because you want as wide a field of view as possible. Because you don't know where in the sky the meter's going to uh, appear. And uh, if it only lasts for a second or so, you're going to miss it with binoculars. So okay. I put my binoculars, leave them at home next but week. This is why you make it a, a group affair and you have friends spotting different parts of the sky, as right. you said earlier. Uh, I suppose it's the same goes for a telescope. Yep. Don't no telescope. Them. Oh, Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite personal experience, Doug Duncan, watching the Perseids? Oh, I sure do, Ryan. I was very fortunate. One, uh, one beautiful night a number of years ago, I had a wilderness permit to camp on top of Half Dome in Yosemite. Yes. And a friend and I went up the, the cables. You know, I'm not a mountaineer. I don't go up the front. But I went up the back, and, and we broke out the camping stove, and we did some cheese fondue. <laughs> I have to admit, I, I took a little wine up there, and we saw something like 400 meteors before we fell asleep over Yosemite. Wow. With cheese, I feel like that always makes things better. I mean, there must be other meteor showers during the year, but what makes the Perseids so special? You know, it's one of the two with the most meteors, and it's the warmest. The other one's in December, the other biggest one. So I always love the Perseids. Actually, every August I check the calendar, and if the moon is going to be small, new moon or close to it, I always camp out. And if it's going to be a, a, a full moon, then I go, ah, next year. And by the way, uh, next year isn't so good. So go out next Wednesday or Thursday if you can. And there's this new moon, as I mentioned, that's enhancing the whole experience, right? Right. The darker the sky, it doesn't matter what pollutes the sky. It can be uh, city lights or it could be the full moon. If, if astronomers had their way, we'd paint the moon black. But uh, <laughs> just wait, wait for new moon. Uh, forgive my ignorance here, but what, what are the December showers called? Um, the quadrantids are the ones I'm thinking of. Then there's the leonids in November. So those are nice. Those are good showers, too. Quadrantids. All right. Uh, the haze from the wildfires uh, really affecting air quality, people's breath. I is that going to be an issue here? Sadly, that's going to cut down on the number you're going to be able to see. Okay. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we speak about space science regularly with astronomer Doug Duncan longtime director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. And Doug, I just want us to unpack some of the vocabulary here. Shooting star, 
Same as Meteor, correct? Yes, absolutely. Meteor versus asteroids versus meteorites. Will you walk us through that, please? Absolutely. So a meteorite is a piece of rock or metal that has fallen to the Earth. The meteor is the streak of light that you see. Now, some meteors come from comets, and the Perseid meteor shower comes from a a comet. We know which comet, actually. Um, But sometimes they come from asteroids. And, you know, asteroids are rocky bodies, and if they hit each other, pieces break off, and that can cause meteors also. So if it hits the ground, it's a meteorite. And, and as it's making the streak, you know, it makes the streak because it goes so fast. The typical speed of a, of a meteorite rushing through the air is probably enough to go, I'd say, Denver to Boulder in one to two seconds. Oh, wow. So that's why they burn up so brightly. They're actually very tiny. Uh, maybe a grain of sand uh, is, is the most typical. If so it's, as fast as some of the HOV drivers I've seen on 36 then. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, just because I want to put a finer point on this. In other words, a meteorite has to have hit the Earth? Yes. Okay. So we don't want meteorite showers. That's a bad thing. You know, uh, it's not <laughs> something to worry about. Okay. I mean, I'm sure lists, many listeners have seen the big crater in Arizona called Meteor Crater. No. That's about a mile across. A uh, rule of thumb is the the meteorite was about a tenth the size of the hole it made. So, um, That's but but those are pretty rare. Meteorite crater, meteor crater is fifty thousand years old. So I don't worry too much about things every fifty thousand years. Of course, all the dinosaurs were wiped out by a meteorite, uh, and that was a worldwide devastation. But that was sixty five million years ago. So I don't <laughs> worry about that. Uh, one about the size of a, a meter will land uh, every few months, but the Earth is big, and only one person has ever been hit by a falling meteorite. And, of course, a lot of the Earth's surface is water. Sure. So that's, so, yeah. What do the Perseids tell you about, just like scientifically, about the universe? The well, meteorites are incredibly valuable. And there's a couple of reasons for that, but the main one is every meteorite that we've found all have the same age. They're all four and a half billion years old. And we are, are quite sure that that marks the beginning of the whole solar system. Um, when the Earth was formed, when the sun was formed. You see, we can't find any rocks that are that old on the Earth because of rain and, and ice and weathering, they're all gone. Mm. So if you're looking for an older rock, you can go to the moon. And the moon rocks are four, maybe 4.3 billion years old. But every meteorite is older than that. And we think it's actually the material from when our solar system formed. And how do you know this? I mean, there must be some analysis of that material and some revelations when you look closely at what they're made of. You know, it's great because it's very rare we get to hold a piece of space in our hand. (laughs) It's the moon rocks and meteorites that pretty much it, Mars rocks someday. Uh, We do radiometric dating, radioactive decay, and it's really quite precise. And once you have it in the lab, you can study the radioactive decay and you know the age very well. One quick question about the Perseids. Why are they always in August? You know, um, they come from a comet. Uh And if you think of the orbit of a comet, maybe people know the orbit of Halley's Comet. They all have big ovals where Halley's Comet goes all the way out to Neptune. 
and then for a brief period of time, it comes zooming in past the Earth. Well, all comets have an orbit like that, and they strew debris, uh, little pieces all along the orbit. So imagine the Earth going around the sun every year. Every August, 10, 11, 12, we pass through that stream of debris, Mm. and we always get a shower. So it's about our orbit and its orbit. Intersecting every August. That's so fascinating. I don't think of comets as being in orbit. That's helpful. Yeah. Wrapping up here, Doug Duncan, the Perseids are not the only cool thing in this month's skies. Both Jupiter and Saturn are visible to the extent that wildfire doesn't block them, I guess. Uh, They are. Um, I went out at 10 o'clock last night, and despite the haze, there was Jupiter, beautiful in the southeastern sky. So to to tell you a little more precisely where to look, it's handy to use degrees. If you hold your fist out at arm's length, your fist covers about 10 degrees. Okay. And Jupiter at 10 o'clock is a little over 10 degrees up in the southwest maybe 12, 13 degrees. So put your fist out, face southwest. Uh, oh my goodness. What? Excuse me. Southeast. Southeast. So face southeast and a little over a fist width up, the brightest point thing in the sky, point object, that's Jupiter. And then two fists to the right, toward more toward the south and a little bit up, that's Saturn. Not nearly as bright as Jupiter. And if you happen to have a pair of binoculars and you can hold them steady, uh, two teeny little dots next to Jupiter, if you can see that, that's its moons. Thank you so much, Doug. It's been fascinating to hear about all that is going on in the night skies in August. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Astronomer Doug Duncan is the former director of the Fisk Planetarium at CU Boulder and indeed joins us regularly to talk about all things space. When mud, rocks, and logs swept across I-70 in Glenwood Canyon last week, some people stayed in their cars. Others sought refuge in a tunnel. Still others were able to drive around the debris to safety. All told, more than 100 people were caught by the torrential downpour. CPR's Miguel Otarula spoke with one of them. When she's not busy tending to the family ranch, Autumn Bear helps deliver babies at the hospital in Glenwood Springs. I commute back and forth a couple days a week um, to my job there, and then otherwise we just um, help work and run the ranch here. The hospital was short-staffed, so she stayed a little later than usual. It was dark and raining lightly by the time she got on the highway and headed home. And as I kind of progressed through the canyon, the rain just got harder and harder. Um, Once I popped out on the east side of the tunnel, the rain was just wild, you know? I mean, my windshield wipers weren't keeping up, and um, that was kind of at the point where I knew I was in. I was going to be in trouble. Bear only made it about a mile out of the tunnel when her car got stuck in debris. That's when I felt like a thump of the mudslide that hit me and more debris, um, and the whole car went black. A wave of mud splattered over the windows. It gushed inside the car and gurgled up from the ground. Bear made a split-second decision. I just took off for home. I felt like that was my best bet, opposed to just being trapped in the car. She ran as fast and as far as she could, using the lightning strikes above her to light the way. She waded barefoot through waist-high pools of mud. 
She eventually was able to call her husband. He drove up from the ranch in an all-terrain vehicle to rescue her and take her back home. Not too many things bring me to, um, to tears or maybe hysteria, but I probably was a little bit hysterical for a while. Bear says she hasn't left the ranch since that night. Her Volkswagen sedan was totaled. She can't get to her job at the hospital as long as the highway is closed. We're kind of like on an island here, <laughs> so we're not really going in or out or doing any of that right now. She says she's lucky it was only mud that hit her car, and not anything bigger, like trees or boulders. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. If your life or livelihood has been impacted by what's happening in Glenwood Canyon, share your story with us. Email coloradomatters at cpr.org. That's coloradomatters at cpr.org. After the discovery of 200 bodies at the site of a former indigenous boarding school in Canada, the U.S. pledged to find every such school in this country and to help search for unmarked graves. In Colorado, that effort was already underway in Grand Junction, where the Teller Indian School once stood. CPR's Claire Cleveland has that story. The Teller Indian School, later called the Teller Institute, opened in 1886. It was one of more than 350 federally run schools to assimilate Native American children. Some children were sent willingly by their families, while many others were forced to go. When the kids were taken from their homes to go to boarding school, they were stripped of their identities. Jacqueline Frost is a member of the Southern Ute tribe. She did not go to a boarding school, but she remembers clearly the impact in her community. Take away their culture, their traditions, their beliefs. They couldn't speak their language. This forced assimilation has had a lasting impact on Native communities, says Southern Ute Chairman Melvin Baker in a recorded statement to CPR News. When children returned to their communities, they were unable to communicate with their loved ones and were sometimes ostracized by their own communities. This traumatic experience produced intergenerational trauma. Which he says still contributes to some of the biggest problems in Indian country today. As for the Teller Institute, it closed in 1911. The state of Colorado turned the facility into a home for people with intellectual disabilities. Over time, the original school buildings were remodeled or torn down. A cemetery, if there was a marked one, was also lost to time. John Seabach is obsessed with figuring out who is buried there and what remains of the buildings from the boarding school. Seabach is an archaeologist at Colorado Mesa University. He scoured archival newspaper clippings and found 21 death notices for children who died at the school. We can't be sure that every single person who died and was buried was mentioned by the newspaper. So there could be many more out there than than we know of. And in fact, that's probably the case. As part of his search in 2019, Seabach took a team of cadaver dogs to investigate part of the grounds that may have once been a cemetery. They picked up a scent, but Seabach says more investigation is needed. So the state has started a Teller Institute task force. Seabach is on the task force with eight other people, including tribal representatives and the state archaeologist Holly Norton. It's not an archaeological site. In a lot of ways, really what we're doing is, you know, more akin to, like, crime scene investigation. And using my archaeological training, not for science, but for helping to find these children and help return them in some fashion to their communities and to their tribes, 
I think is a, a really important part of what I'm doing here. The Grand Junction Regional Complex is still home to 11 people with disabilities. In 2016, state lawmakers decided it was too expensive to maintain and passed a bill requiring the sale or transfer of the complex. Now the question is, what becomes of the site? The researcher, Seabach, wants to see what's left of the school buildings preserved and make it a memorial site where people can go see their ancestors. Yolanda Webb with the Colorado Department of Human Services first needs to relocate the residents with disabilities. And to work with our Native American partners that are part of this task force in really getting to some closure on that very painful history, that's, that's where we are. Teller was not the only Indian boarding school in Colorado. The site of another became Fort Lewis College in Durango, which today has a mission to serve Indigenous students. Efforts are underway to save what remains of a third school in Ignacio, which is on the Southern Ute Reservation, to possibly make it into a memorial. Southern Ute Chairman Baker says the history of the U.S. government's ethnocide needs to be taught in schools nationwide. In order to heal from the generational trauma, we must confront the past and shed light on the hidden cruelty. He says while his community suffered, it also made them stronger. And he's proud of the way they have learned from the adversity of boarding schools. He wants the future of the Teller Institute land to be guided by those who were and are still affected by the boarding school era. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. Grateful for that story, Claire. Finally today, there is mutual admiration between two big names in Colorado music. The Lumineers and Gregory Allen Isakoff covered each other's songs for a new compilation that's out today. It's from Dual Tone Records, marking that label's 20th anniversary. Dual Tone is based in Nashville and has helped launch the careers of many Americana artists. Singer-songwriter Gregory Allen Isakoff of Boulder County chose to do Salt and the Sea by Denver superstars The Lumineers. We'll play a bit of the original first and then let the cover take over. All that you suffered, all the disease, you couldn't hide it, hide it from me. All alone scared in your room, would you swear? Isakoff calls the song's melody beautiful and says of his version, I hope we did it justice. Okay, now let's listen to the Lumineers return the gesture and cover Isakov's Caves. Lead singer Wesley Schultz recalls seeing Isakov perform the song at Red Rocks 
and being totally crushed in the best of ways by it. As you'll hear, the Lumineers version is more tender and stripped down than the heavier sound here in Isakov's original. I used to love games Stumble out into that big sky Remember that bright hollow moon Showed our insides on our outside This town Closes down The same time every day Put out the smoke In your mind Let's put all these words away Let's put all these words away Now I think I like birds See them fly from St. Paul And I go around on the nights I hear her every time she calls Sitting here with Goosebumps in the studio, Americinda 20 Years of Dual Tone is available today. We've been getting a taste with Colorado label mates, the Lumineers, and Gregory Allen Isakov, covering each other's songs. And thanks to the team that always has Colorado Matters covered. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Let's put all these words.